Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the camera podcast, Pubs, Pints, People. I'm Claire Phillips, and with me, as ever, are Alison Tafts and Simon Webster. Last week, we were at Olympia for the 2023 Great British Beer Festival, and hopefully we gave you a flavour of what was going on, albeit not in the same way as if you'd been there with a glass of beer in your hand. We have some more full interviews that we recorded for the GBBF special. We didn't want to shorten them to squeeze them into an already packed podcast, so we've split our GBBF special into two parts, and this is part two. There were several books launched at GBBF and we spoke with Des Demur about his new book Cask and also with Adam Wells about his new book All About Perry which is planned to be published early next year. We also hear from Pete Brown about the Drink Cask Fresh campaign that he's been closely involved with. Before the beer festival, Alison spoke with Des Demur about his new book Cask. Des, I know you, like me, and so many of our listeners are deeply passionate about cask. So tell us about this new book. So this book is called Cask, (laughs) simply, uh, and the subtitle is uh, The Real Story of Britain's Unique Beer Culture. And I think that kind of captures some of what the book is trying to do. So it's really trying to tell the story in depth about cask. It's explaining what cask is, how it's made, how it's particularly how it's kind of served, and conditioned in the cellar and all those kinds of things. So it goes into to detail about that, but in a non-technical way. It's not written for uh, you know for brewers or for, for cellar keepers or whatever. It's written for for, for kind of interested drinkers. And uh, then it continues through the history of cask as well, because I think again that's something that's quite misunderstood, going right back to the beginnings of brewing and right through to the present day. And then the final chapter is about the future of cask, where you know as I'm sure most people listening to this will realise there are some challenges with cask beer so what are those challenges what can we do about them and 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 what kind of future does cask have so it's trying to tell that whole story and particularly in this context of saying you know britain's unique beer culture because i think the the other thing about cask is it's one of those things that's I mean, there are tiny, tiny pockets of it in other places, and I cover some of that in the book. So I talk to some uh, some people who make cask in the United States and in Canada and in Ireland, and I also know there's other people in places like Italy and Scandinavia doing it, but it's a really, really tiny scale. Whereas in this country, still, 
just about you know it's something that's still a, a, a you know to some extent a mass market product you can you know expect to walk in find at least some pubs in in most places where you might find a hand pump on the bar that is really special because cast does something really special as well that's another thing that the book goes into what is it that sets cask apart why is it important and and, and not just in terms of saying well you know it's, it's heritage and that kind of thing but also what what effect does it have in the here and now in terms of like you know the the flavour and of the beer and the enjoyment of drinking it and I really just you know try and make the case for cask it's really interesting I don't think anyone's done a book like this before I've certainly not come across anything and I suppose the other thing to say is that the book tries to challenge some of the myths as well because that's the other thing all the kind of conversations that have been generated um, about cask over many many decades starting at a time when the people who drank it and enjoyed it really didn't know very much about the the technical side of it and when the sort of knowledge of of brewing and, uh, and, and beer was sort of far lower um, than it is today. There's a lot of myths been perpetuated about it, and I think this is the other thing that the book tries to do. It tries to, you know, tell the real story, as, uh, uh, as I say in the title. It sounds amazing, incredibly comprehensive. I absolutely cannot wait to get my hands <laughs> on my copy. Okay. Um, what made you decide this, to sort of write this book right now? Well, just really partly because there was a gap there. You know, I saw that there was that gap, and I was one of those people who, you know, constantly found myself confronting some of these myths about cask. I suppose the germ of it was in that period um, back in the, you know, the last decade. There was a sort of period when craft beer was really emerging and the craft beer movement was emerging. We were starting to see on a widespread scale for the first time in, in British pubs some really, really good and flavoursome keg beers and then bottled and increasingly canned beers starting to emerge. Beers that weren't cask but were still, you know, very full of flavour and obviously very well made and so on. And of course that sparked off a, a huge debate, some of which was quite misinformed on both sides and I was quite frustrated with that at the time. I, uh, you know, started to kind to think my way through so I started actually to write what I thought was going to be a little mini book at the time which was originally called Real Ale and Reality um, it kind of you know other things sort of took over but then I came back to the idea and somebody said to me well you really should put it to camera books because you know there was a time when they would have been the last people I'd go to about it I have to say but cameras changed over the past few years it's finally kind of caught up with those changes and it's kind of looked at things around its definition of cask and its definition definition of live beer and started to engage with things like key kegs and so on so you know there has been a, a big change blowing through and I think it was the you know the right time to do that kind of book with camera books but also the right time to do the book with an increasing number of people who are now coming into beer and like you know really really getting enthusiastic and motivated about beer they're people I meet um, through the other work I do so all the kind of tutor tastings and beer tours and things that I do who don't necessarily come to it through that cask route so they haven't really engaged with cask and I suppose it's also trying to write something for them and tell them why cask is important and particularly addressing the facts which another it's another point the book makes we have to face the fact now that yes it is still fairly widely available certainly compared to other countries but it's a niche product now the latest statistics that I have show that you know if you look at the proportion of beer produced in the UK cask only accounts for about 4.2% of it it's a very very 
small amount of output from breweries. That's still quite a lot of beer, but it's much, much less than if you look back to, say, the beginning of the uh, 20th century when cask was pretty much accounting for well over 90% of the output of British breweries. So, you know, it's, its position in the market has changed hugely, and I think we need to accept that. We need to, to, to accept that it's, a, it's now a niche product and we need to kind of, you know, sell it on that basis and attract people to it on that basis rather than trying to pretend it's it's still you know the uh, the drink of the average working man which it, it, it clearly isn't that's quite a statistic i am that's quite sobering mm. uh if that's a good choice of words yeah. but yes i think there's something there's a there's something really really interesting there about that idea of it being a specialist product yeah. so what what are your thoughts having gone through this obviously very comprehensive process des and, and get your words onto the page what are your thoughts now about the future of cask i think if we accept that fact and we focus on you know making it a kind of quality premium product and focus on what makes it different and not just in terms of its heritage because I don't think that engages everybody. Saying something is kind of, you know, part of our heritage and tradition isn't necessarily a, a way of engaging people who don't necessarily aren't necessarily familiar with that heritage and tradition. I think we need also need to focus on the effect that serving cask beer um, at a slightly lower carbonation, a slightly kind of warmer temperature than, than, than cake beer has on the flavour of it and, and, and on the mass feel and the kind of perception that we get of the uh, of the flavors and aromas that way in a way that we won't get through any other way which works so well with those kind of traditional british beer styles and i think if we focus on that and the you know keeping it the highest possible quality and positioning it as a specialist product then it's got a chance but it also has to pay for itself and i think this is the other thing where but i might part ways with a, a, a few keen cast drinkers is it, it, we have to recognize it's underpriced you know it's it's often the cheapest yes. thing on the bar and it's actually you know the specialist product that's the most involved in terms of making it looking after it it's got a very short shelf life you know, it's an average of kind of three days once you start emptying a, a cask you've got to sell it before it, it its quality drops below a certain level that it's not worth drinking and um, with all those problems, it's ridiculous that we're paying, you know, people expect to pay less for it than they expect to pay for a standard industrial lager from a multinational with all their economies of scale. I think we need to, to face that too. And if we can keep that going as a real kind of quality product, as a real kind of beacon of something you know, really special that beer can do in a way that other drinks can't, we're in with a chance because we're in with the fact that it might build up again and it might build up to the extent that people will sustain it and they'll start to see it in the same bracket as perhaps they see other products they you know beer products that they are more readily recognized as like artisanal in some way like kind of uh, you know modern style craft beers and mixed fermentation beers and things like that i make the comparison in the book between cask and lambic cask if you look internationally cask is kind of recognized in the same bracket if you talk to a lot of brewers outside the uk you know they're absolutely fascinated by it in the same way that they're fascinated by wild fermentation and mixed fermentation beers those are recognized as specialist artisanal products you know we need to get cask into that same bracket and sustain it that way i think yes i think that's inspired actually that combination of things like lambic beers and cask Mm -hmm. i think you know we're in this country we're probably too close to it to see it in quite that way um and i obviously thoroughly agree with your your feelings on the underpriced nature of cask it really is a problem um and, and i do understand cost pressures and people wanting to get a pint at value but equally as you say uh, cask really ought to be a more expensive representative on the bar yeah i think the um, other important so, point to talk about price is the price differential
financial side. But there's also this kind of expectation that if your cask beer is at a certain ABV, then it should cost a certain amount, regardless of where it comes from, how it's made, what the ingredients are, what the style is, how many or how few hops have gone into it or whatever. You know, oh, OK, if it's 4% ABV, we will pay this much per firkin. If it's 4.5, we will pay this much. And you can't think of any other product where that is the case, where people kind of don't expect that the like the quality and the provenance and things like that shouldn't play a role. You know, it's like the idea that you could expect a bottle of, um, of sort of bog standard plonk to cost exactly the same as a Grand Cru Classe Bordeaux on the grounds that they're both 13.5%. You know, it's ludicrous. And I think that would be a good start to actually start to see differentials in price and that, you know, some, some casks cost more than others. And it's not just because of their strength. Absolutely. And thinking about taking on what you're talking about, there's obviously some of these things that we're discussing here are going to be uh, of great interest to camera members and beer lovers listening to this podcast. So what kind of thing can we do to help assure uh, Cascale's future right now? drink it <laughs> i think you know drink it and buy it but also you know drink drink good quality cask you know seek out good quality cask and send out that message that what really matters with cask is is that quality you know be discriminating about it and also be critical about it the average quality of cask and that it's not quite as good as it ought to be partly because of the way it's looked after and partly because places try to do too much um and they, when they don't have the turnover if we're a little bit more upfront in a polite way of like you know sort of highlighting that a little bit it, it, it wouldn't do any harm all the surveys find that if somebody goes into a pub buys a pint of cask and it's a bit flat and it's a bit vinegary and, and not very nice then they're they're not so likely to complain about it they're just likely to walk out the door and not come back again so that doesn't necessarily get registered that there's a problem there so you know if you are kind of up to very politely you know suggesting there might be something wrong with it you know that i think that 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 helps too just to to yeah. to, to raise that issue with people i've been to that there's and definitely obviously we've got the national beer scoring uh, yeah. option as well for those people who enjoy doing that that's something a nice way to contribute yes. in terms of the uh, yeah. good beer guide and things like that yeah. so definitely when we were writing the book i met up with a cask mark assessor uh, to talk about uh, kind of assessing sellers and um, we went in a pub in central london and uh, i wasn't drinking because i had lots of other calls to make that day but he ordered a pint of cask and uh, <laughs> lo and behold we were there oh. to talk about cask quality and there was this horrible dirty greasy gas with like you know no hair and the cast was vinegary and flat and too warm and all the problems that we were going to talk about and I just this is absolutely perfect that this has happened just now you know the perfect example yeah. it's clear to me that we we just need to keep focusing on those two simple things keep drinking cast keep looking for the good stuff yeah. and tell people when it's not right yes celebrated beer writer Pete Brown has been working for the last six months on the cross industry drink cask fresh campaign which aims to make Cascale more relevant to a younger audience who may only drink it occasionally. Pete says the research reveals that there are no deeply held prejudices against Cascale amongst younger drinkers, but there are ways that the industry can work together to promote the visibility and relevance of cask as a whole to everybody's benefit. I'm delighted to be talking to you about a subject very close to my, your and camera's heart, yes, drinking cask fresh. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's uh, <laughs> close to all our hearts. So tell us a little bit, for those who haven't heard of it, I don't know where they've been, but they might have missed it. So give us a little outline of, of what the campaign's been about. There are a lot of industry bodies that are interested in cask, both from a commercial point of view and more than that, most people are involved in it from a very personal 
point of view as well. And Cascale is not doing very well at the moment. Uh, the market is about half of where it was 10 years ago. And there's been a lot of meetings and cask reports and, and things like that, trying to kind of put out some positive messages about cask. I wrote the first cask report about 16 years ago, I think. And obviously, it hasn't sort of changed the direction. And so people from Camera and Sieber about a year ago had this idea to do a consumer-facing campaign about cask to try and get it noticed again. So there was a lot of research uh, into how you might engage people. You know, the, the cask drinkers ageing. I think a, a lot of people can go into cask, good cask pubs and see, see a lot of cask ale being sold, but it's not recruiting the younger drinkers that it needs to kind of stay where it is. And so the campaign is all about what can you say to younger drinkers might be different from what the older drinker loves about cask, but what can you do to engage these people who are currently not really uh, engaging with it? Yeah, and I think this angle that we're, you've, you've talked about have been focused in on, on sort of challenging perhaps some of those misconceptions. And I know that you've picked up on a couple of key points that people, uh, people are interested in hearing about before they choose a drink at the bar. Yeah, it's a funny one because what, what you get in the, in the industry talking shops, in the groups where we all sit around, people say, oh yeah, caskets, just beardy old men in socks and sandals and stuff like that. I've never, ever heard that played back by a consumer from outside the industry. That, that's, that's something we just tell ourselves and we, we're talking it down. What you do get from consumers is cask, oh, it's don't know much about it, uh, don't really think about it. Uh, it's a bit warm, isn't it? It's a bit strong. It's always dark. You know, it's things like that. So we wanted to kind of uh, challenge some of those. It's more about the products than the image of it. And people just don't know enough about it. So we wanted to kind of start talking about it in ways that might be relevant to people. And there's a lot of different things you could say about cask. People like the fact that it's local. They think that it's made on a smaller scale. There's more artisanship to it. They actually kind of quite like the tradition and the history aspect to it. But we sort of zoomed in on this idea that because... In a, in a good cask pub, the, the beer is on only on the bar for three days. That cask ale is actually the freshest beer on the bar. You know, if, if it's not sold in three days, in theory, it should go. And freshness is important to people. Uh, it's something they expect from their beer. They expect it to be fresh. So we thought that might be an interesting way of changing how people think about cask. Yeah, I mean, certainly since, you know, that, that I read about that, we've changed the header. Uh, in my pub, we are very cask driven and I've started writing fresh cask ale, whereas before I used to write cask ale, now I write fresh cask ale yeah. and I find myself using that uh, term and it definitely does chime with people, the idea. And I think people really don't realise that cask is as, as ephemeral as it is. It comes and then it needs to go. But uh, in that is the joy of that freshness and that sort of living in the moment idea. So I really think it taps in well to people's focus on that. So overall, what has the campaign been trying to do? How has it been reaching out to these potential consumers? So what we did, this is this has been very much a pilot stage to see to see how it works and to, to learn, see what we can learn about it. So the idea is that what we learn from the pilot, we then put into rolling it out a bit more broadly in, in the future. And so what we did, it was very much a kind of controlled experiment. We had 27 pubs that we ran a campaign in, and each one of those pubs was paired up with a pub that was very similar in terms of how big it was, how much casket sold, and that kind of thing. And so we got two pubs. And uh, one's got the campaign material in it. The other one doesn't. And apart from that, they're very, very similar. So 27 pairs of those. And we ran that for 10 weeks from, from March to May. 
We talked to the staff. We had WhatsApp groups with the staff in the in the trial pubs. We did some focus group research in them, and we monitored the sales data to compare the, the pilot pub with the control pub uh, all over 10 weeks. So we, we learned a hell of a lot about how the campaign actually worked. I know that you are planning uh, on the Tuesday of GBBF to, to give the sort of full results, but can you give us a sneak peek as to what the results have been? I mean, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were looking at it in terms of what we want to do with people is is get them to notice cask, then get them talking about it and asking questions about it, and then hopefully buy more of it. We definitely succeeded in making cask more noticeable. We definitely succeeded in getting more conversation around it. It's inconclusive as to whether that in, that kind of went through into sales. In some pubs, cask sales absolutely rocketed. In others, they didn't. And, and there's so many different factors feeding into that. The weather whether you're a university pub and the students home halfway through the trial. Pubs where cask went up really well, but it went up even higher in the control pub. And then you find out that the control pub had a, uh, a wedding reception on where the, the groom and all his mates drank cask, you know. <laughs> so there's, there's all these different factors. What we definitely did, we gave cask the high profile that it needs. And, and more than that, we learned in a bit more detail about what some of the issues around it are. Things that were kind of in plain sight, but we hadn't really noticed or thought about before. So, for example, cask is now the only beer that when it's poured from the pump, it's below the bar. So even when you get a pint of Guinness now, you can actually see the pint being poured. It's above the bar. It's in your eye line. And you order a pint mm-hmm. of cask, and the, the, you can't see what they're doing below the bar, and then out comes this pint of beer. And, and people are a bit trepidatious about that. The other thing is that we, we did this one piece of uh, promotional material, and we just put different colours, uh, beers of different colours. We put a, we put a, a Blondale in, uh, a Best Bitter, and, and a Porter. And, and people looked at that and went, wow, I didn't know it came in all those different colours. Wow, that's really interesting. But that isn't even what we were trying to research. We had some slogans on top of these pieces of paper. They weren't even looking at the slogans. They were looking at the different colours of the beer. So it's like, oh, right, so the way it looks and how it's presented is really, really important. And there's a lot of stuff that if you look at the success of things like Mediterranean lager, we could slag them off and say the product's awful to our heart's content. It doesn't change the fact that it's growing way, way faster than than cask is. And, and when you look at what they're doing right, the glassware, the presentation, the pour being in your eye line, knowing what to expect. So there's a lot to think about for the industry. And I, and I think we learned that there's only so much an individual brand can do. You know, if you look at a good cask pub, there's no point trying to have individual branded glassware because if you've got a lot of guest ales, they're changing every couple of days. So you can't possibly have all the glassware you need. So having a cask branded glass, that went down really, really well. If we're serving cask ale, we're serving it in a cask fresh glass, whatever the brand of, of, of cask ale is. So there's a lot of stuff that we need to can now feed back into the industry and ask them to think about. That visual thing is, is such a draw for people. And it's so interesting that, as you were saying, it never occurred to me that, of course, it's buried under the bar and people don't see the colour and they don't see the pour. So, yeah, the visual thing clearly is a big learning for us. In terms of the types of beer being drunk, was that changed by the campaign at all or was it broadly across the board of these different styles? I think uh, we tried analysing um, sales data by brand and splitting it by guest and regular and we'd still be here in five years' time if I tried to kind of do it that way. So we had to go for the total numbers. It's a really complicated exercise. But what we did see from that thing with the different colours is that there's a lot of people who drink cask very, very occasionally who immediately said, well, I'd drink it a lot more if I knew that I could get a pale one like that because that's not too far away from lager. So the fact that there's so many different styles, on the one hand, it's confusing for people because they don't really know where to start. On the other hand, if they get a bit more navigation around it, if they're a bit more confident around it, then it's a massive source of cask appeal. 
And do you think with, with all of this focus and attention of the campaign, perhaps people were giving out more tasters? Because that's something I feel is a really powerful tool that we have, where pubs give tasters to people. And suddenly when you're tasting it, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, I mean, we always encourage that. And and one factor that you get with, with running a promotion like this is that in the pubs where they're going, yeah, brilliant, we're going to re- we're going to really get behind this and we're going to get the staff to talk to people about it and we're going to offer samples. Guess what? It did a lot better than uh, in the pubs where people just went, all right, then we'll put your leaflets out and leave it at that. So the more the staff are engaged, I mean, every single piece of research I've ever seen says that staff recommendation is one of the biggest things that drives people's choice of what they're going to drink if they haven't already decided. And so if you get some passionate pro-cask bar staff giving out samples, talking about the beers, then you're going to sell more cask. It's as simple as that. So perhaps that's the key to our focus area is is employer and employee engagement. Yeah, totally. I sort of split it into three groups in my head now. There are there are lots and lots of pubs out there that are passionate about cask and they're selling loads of it. And if you're drinking to those pubs, you can go, well, what's the problem? This is fine. There's not much a campaign like this can do to help those pubs. They're, they've got it. They're sorted. There's a whole other bunch of pubs where they're just not interested and you know what? I'd rather they didn't sell cask than, than sell a bad pint of cask. And then in the middle, you've got these pubs that are kind of keen, interested, curious about cask, but just need a bit more push, a bit more help. And that's what a campaign can really do with, uh, is they're going, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about cask. How do I sell more of it? How do I learn more about it? And that's that's where we need to be focusing this as it goes forward, I think. So really focusing in, zoning in on those areas where we can really make a difference. Yeah. So in terms of what, what came out of the exercise that you think are really the things that we should be doing differently in the future uh, to make the best use of this research and work you've been doing? There's so many different potential things you can say about cask. And there are certain things that appeal to some people and not to other people. So we put like these really kind of cool stemmed branded pint glasses in. And all the old regulars who were at the bar going, I don't want my beer in that, I want my old dimpled pint mug. That's horrible, that's rotten. And it's like, yeah, fine, okay, we won't serve you the beer in the, in the campaign glass. But then you give it to someone in their 30s who's, who's choosing a pint of cask instead of a pint of lager, they think it looks really cool. So it's kind of zooming in on the people who, who are interested and, and getting the messages right to the people who are interested. So people who are hard camera fans, they love the fact that Cascale has secondary fermentation in the pub cellar and it's not finished until it's been properly vented and, uh, and left to condition and, and settled for a few days. And that's one of the things that they like about it, the fact that it's still a live product. If you talk to kind of a more general drinker, that stuff can actually put them off. It sounds way too technical, way too boring. But if you tell them, well, it's made locally or it's the freshest beer on the bar, they go, oh, right, yeah, well, that's interesting. So it's it's about getting the right messages out to the right people and really thinking about how we talk about cask. You've got so many different aspects of it to choose from to talk about, and it's matching the right message up with the right people. There we go. I think that sounds like a brilliant conclusion to get the messaging right in the right places. And I guess it's the the publican and his his team are the best people to understand you know how to reach those Absolutely. different audiences definitely yeah. okay so so what do you think is going to happen next pete i've got to present the the full results back to the industry uh, and then hopefully people will engage and say okay we're prepared to fund this campaign for for the next stage but we have to start, sit and with the learnings that we've got and decide what that next stage is, is going to be. But whether it's, I, I certainly hope that we see this campaign go forward, but whether it's this campaign or not, I think what we've proven is the need for a category campaign where the industry gets together and works with one voice. 
is absolutely vital. So I hope that happens, and I hope that if it does, then it's behind this campaign. Is there any way that we can um, see the results? Obviously, the website that you've created, the Drink Cask Fresh website, is that staying in situ for the time I being? I certainly hope so. Yeah, it's a really useful resource. Yeah, yeah. These, these things obviously all, all cost money, so it's, it's all about people deciding to carry on giving us their generous support. I would encourage anyone who hasn't been to the Drink Cask Fresh website to take a look um, because it's very concise, very clearly presented. It's got lovely glossaries and information providing support for publicans, uh, for drinkers alike. So, yeah, really useful tool, I think. And hopefully uh, that kind of a clear communication can help cut through uh, with some folks, as you say, some different audiences uh, that would be interested to stumble upon it or, or go and find it. So fantastic. And in terms of the findings, those of us who aren't able to make your session where you're feeling reading back your findings in a bit more detail. Where can we go to follow up on that? Uh, I would suggest the Drink Cast Fresh website is a good place to start, but we will be publicising them quite heavily through camera, through SIBA, so hopefully it will appear in your inbox as well pretty soon. Around the time of GBBF, Camera announced the upcoming release of its groundbreaking new Perry book from writer Adam Wells, which will be the first consumer guide to one of the UK's most traditional drinks. Despite being largely unknown outside of the UK, Perry has for centuries been compared to fine wine and champagne in countries all around the world. Although it's fallen out of fashion in recent years, it's making a comeback, with producers creating both new and traditional Perrys to great acclaim. Camera's championing of cider and perry at its festivals over the last 50 years has been credited with playing a significant role in keeping perry alive. And now the campaign is going further to promote and support this traditional drink. Penned by drinks writer, presenter and founder editor of the popular Cider Review website, Adam Wells. As a perry advocate and lover, I am so delighted that Adam is writing this book. His passion for this drink is boundless and his knowledge encyclopedic, as you will hear. I sat down and spoke with Adam at Olympia as we were both volunteering on the Learning and Discover stand at GBBF, sharing tasters of Perry with visitors, and he makes a deeply compelling case for this somewhat neglected delight. So, Adam, I know that you and I are both big Perry devotees. You are the biggest Perry devotee, and and it's no surprise to me that you've chosen to write this amazing book. But when I explain what Perry is to people quickly during service in the pub, I say Perry is to pears as to cider is to apples. How would you describe it, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. That's the best shorthand for it. It is just the equivalent of, um, of cider, but with pears, or indeed the equivalent of wine, but with pears. It is a fermented, not brewed, drink made out of a particular fruit, uh, in this case, pears. Often very special and specific varieties of pears which are grown specifically for no other purpose than perry. But of course, perry can be made from, um, from any sort of pears and indeed is all around the world. We do see perry in, in lots of different locations, don't we? And it's interesting to see your timing now to write this book so tell us first of all what's going to be the title and when can we get our hands on this book so the title is a work in progress uh, it'll be something along the lines of uh, the drinker's guide to perry or the camera guide to perry but something that communicates that it is a guide specifically aimed at the drinker to this wonderful drink which hasn't had its own um, book aimed at the drinker before there's going to be a kickstarter campaign in october exactly the same idea as it was for gabe's brilliant modern british cider a few years ago and if that goes as we hope it will then the book will be published in may next year 
Perfect, just in time for Cider and Perry Month. So that seems perfect timing. So what made you decide to write this book now? If you look at the raw numbers of Perry in the UK, it looks like a drink that's in a really parlous state. They've dropped 47% in the last few years. But if you dig a little bit deeper, that mainly reflects the biggest commercial brands uh, of Perry. So names that people might recognize, things like Baby Sham or indeed Copperberg Pear Cider, because in the UK and in most countries, Pear Cider has exactly the same legal definition as Perry. It's just a different name. The question of whether it should be called Pear Cider or Perry is one that we'll address in the book. But to return to the initial point, What has also happened in the last few years as these big commercial brands have struggled is that aspirational Perrys have just started to really find their voice and do better and better. And by aspirational Perrys, I mean Perrys made with high juice content, not from concentrate, Perrys that look to hero these varieties, champion these incredible trees, some of which can live up to 300 years old, and Perrys made with the sensitivity and care of any of the great drinks in the world. You've got producers like Ross on Y, Oliver's, Craig's Pit, and many, many more making these these wonderful, wonderful drinks and just getting better and better. And new makers are starting to approach Perry, places that have not previously perhaps been associated with Perry, like the United States and Australia, even Japan, are saying, hey, you know, there's, there's this amazing drink to be made here. We're interested. And so the quality of Perry really hasn't been as high as it is now for, for centuries, um, potentially. And so it's an exciting time for Perry, and the more exciting it becomes, the more uh, apparent it was that um, this guide for a drinker just, just wasn't there. And so we're looking to, to change that. So you're filling that gap so we can find out more about this fascinating drink. And I noticed you mentioned there the history of Perry. And I know that certainly from my reading, and I'm sure you'll mention this, it really does have a quite a noble history, doesn't it? In terms of the drinking past, Perry was seen as something really, really special as we kind of feel it is today. It was, absolutely. I mean, um, the first written mention of Perry goes all the way back to Pliny in the first century AD, where in fact, in his first ever mention of a drink that we'd recognize as Perry, he's directly comparing it to wine. So <laughs> it has been compared to other drinks for its entire recorded life. But yeah, in the, in the UK, in the 17th century, you've got, at the same time as people were, were taking this real intellectual academic interest in cider, you have the same people studying Perry, considering varieties, looking at ways that they can make more interesting Perry in ways that, that kind of champion the fruit, and, and on an international level. You know, in the same decade as we start reading about Perry being taken more seriously in the UK, we have those same people saying, oh, and we've heard from makers and uh, ambassadors in Switzerland that they have this incredible pear that actually makes what the UK pomologists were saying was the best perry in the world. So it's always been international. And, and our recorded history of it in the UK, it's actually not as long as it is in countries like France and Austria. And so that's something that I'm really keen to kind of emphasize in the book. It shouldn't be an insular drink. It's an international drink that uh, we're very, very lucky to still have in the UK because some countries have this incredible Perry history and now it's all but gone. Um, Switzerland, particularly and Germany, have, have clung on to it really by, by the skin of their teeth. It's only the UK and France and Austria that still have a really significant modern Perry culture. And it's just so rare and important. And I think it's very 
very, you know, it's vital that that history and that heritage and particularly just this incredible flavorful drink gets protected. Many people listening to this will be camera members, will understand how important it is to hold on to those traditions. Aside from that, from a sort of pure enjoyment point of view, why should people seek out and try and drink, drink Perry, Adam? Well, first and foremost, just because, as you say, it's absolutely delicious. Second of all, because it's not a monolith. You often read descriptions of Perry in a very generalized sense as just being something that is light and floral and mostly a bit sweet. And often it is. And those Perrys can be lovely, but it's so much more than that. You know, you taste something like the flaky bark from Ross on Wye, and it is big and muscular and bold and tannic and rich or you taste an ice perry so a a dessert perry that's luscious and honeyed or you taste an austrian berninmost that is very much influenced by the the white wines of that region and it's fresh and brisk and venous in texture and dry and and sharp and beautiful with the local food or you taste something like a mistel which is a fortified pear juice and they're very popular in the dom front region of France. So it's the same idea as a pomo, which is the equivalent made from apples, but it's made from pear spirit added to pear must. And those are oak-aged and they're bold and they're they're rich. So so Perry has this huge, huge diversity of style and flavour and of course that's augmented by the fact that there are hundreds of peri pear varieties, culinary pear varieties that are used to make peri all over the world. And each one of those varieties offers different flavors either on its own or as part of a blend. So people should look out peri because it is so much more than perhaps they might believe it to be. And there is a world of flavor for the curious drinker to uncover. If I'm listening to this and I haven't had an opportunity to sort of get into Perry and I'm not certain where to start. Where would be the best place for me to look to get my sort of first taste of Perry? First and foremost, look up camera recommended pubs such as uh, your own house and the hop in. <laughs> if there isn't one within immediate walking distance, one of the great things that's happened with Insider and Perry and what's facilitated, in my opinion, this revolution that we've seen in the last five years is the rise of online Cider and Perry merchants, originally um, scratch who are much missed, but also the Fine Cider Company, and particularly the Cat in the Glass that's run by Nicky Kong. And they have an incredible selection of Perry's from a, a broad array of producers, which are home delivery. So that has really moved the gateposts on accessibility to Perry, where previously you maybe had to know of producers and go to these places, usually in Herefordshire or Gloucestershire or Monmouthshire. You know, now you can find this this uh, selection online and, and, and order mixed cases or cases of your favorite to your home. And, and they're run by such knowledgeable people that if you're not sure, if you're bewildered by this choice, the descriptions are there but you can also just reach out and contact them and say here are my preferences here are things i've enjoyed maybe in the past here are flavors that i like what can you recommend and they always will they do a fantastic job just to recap you mentioned in october you will be having a kickstarter or a process there um, and what type of thing is going to be going on around that we're still working out the details of exactly how the Kickstarter will go, but it's coinciding with what's usually Camera's Cider Month, but is this year going to be Camera's Perry Month. (laughs) So there'll be videos and tastings and events and all sorts of things going on that we'll be very much involved with. Regarding the Kickstarter, again, we're we're figuring out the shape it's going to take, but there'll be things like signing up for potentially early copies of the book, 
or some other tastings or whatever else it might be. So we're going to come up with some really sort of exciting stuff, which I'm, I'm very much looking forward to. Thank you so much. And thanks very much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. So there we are. A big thank you to the camera team for making all of this possible. To my fellow hosts, Claire Phillips and Simon Webster, and our chief editor, David King. We'd like to dedicate this episode to Camera GBBF's incredible volunteers, well over a thousand of them, as well as our hardworking volunteers at festivals all over the country. And that's it until the next season of Pubs, Pints, People. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, give us a like, and you can also find full details of this and past episodes on the camera website at camera.org.uk forward slash podcast. And of course, you can find us on our social media channels as well. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer52 by going to www beer52.com forward slash people that's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95 and what's more as a special offer for our listeners they'll throw in two extra beers for free so that's 10 unique craft beers Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world each month they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world and this month it's an absolute belter Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia, Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. 
So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5and2.com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.